from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. There are a few products out there that are very effective, but they tend to have ingredients that are well-established. Most of the stuff that you find on the CVS counter is probably just marketing hype. In some of our episodes of We're Still Practicing, we address some pretty esoteric specialties. Some that are interesting, but only affect a tiny number of people. Well, this subject isn't one of those. It's about your patient's or your largest organ. No, this is not a bar joke. It's your skin. Somehow, between our atmosphere's thinner ozone layers and our exponentially better methods of diagnosis, eventually, we all focus on skin cancers and aging issues. When was the last time you saw your dermatologist? Or if you're a doctor yourself, have your patients report back to you that they're diligent in having their skin checked. There's a whole world of serious or cosmetic challenges that start with our skin. And today, we're talking with one of the most renowned dermatologists in the country. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. First, my co-host, quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Dr. Steve? Hey, Bill. And our special guest, Dr. Payam Abrashami. He's a board-certified dermatologist and a pathologist. He practices something called dermatopathology. He's got a medical degree from Cornell University and a multi-decade practice, including both a dermatological practice as well as dermatopathology, where he is the physician's physician. Dr. Abrashami is one of the most experienced dermatopathologists in the country. He currently interprets cases for over 40 dermatologists and dermatopathologists nationwide. He has interpreted over a half a million skin biopsies and diagnosed over 50,000 melanomas. He is the guy when it comes to, well, skin. Nice of you to join us, Dr. Abrashami. Thank you so much for having me. So let, let's kind of start slightly on the lighter side. Some of us on this, I won't say who, podcast are a little older than others. And so there's this aging thing. Can you just tell us what happens to our skin as we age? There's probably two main factors. One of it is just a clock in the cells where they disintegrate, your proteins aren't produced as much, you're not building up mucopolysaccharides, your elasticity is diminished. So that happens with time and, and there is you know senescence with hair growth and skin growth and how much cholesterol you produce. Really everything starts to fall apart. Clearly, the bigger factor in accelerating those processes is sun exposure. So with sun exposure, you have a tremendously more rapid destruction of your elasticity, your collagen bundles, your skin cell thickness, the blood vessel protection around your skin. So everything tends to get damaged. It's not just skin cancer. It's irregular pigmentation. It's loss of you know your turgor or your thickness. Is that ultraviolet that does that? Yeah, predominantly. You're talking about your UVA, UVB, and if you're in you know, very high altitude, UVC and other radiation that you might get. But down here, you're really getting beaten up by UVA and UVB. So some of the things that you've just mentioned that happen to your skin, is there any way to reverse some of that? You can do a lot as far as reversing neoplasia, which is a replication of cells, skin cancer cells or other kinds of growths. 
there really truthfully isn't that much you can do in restoring structure. For sure, if you lose volume in your face, you can restore some volume by adding hyaluronic acid fillers, or you can do fat transplant into your face or other modalities to build up volume. But a lot of patients come in and they are horrified by the thinning of their skin on their hands, their arms, their legs are discolored. And there really isn't all that much you can do to improve it. Sure, you can use lights, lasers, chemical peels, et cetera, to reverse some of the dark spots. But are you really reversing the other 90% of the changes you see due to aging and sun damage? Not really. Exercise alone, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I see patients who get really fit. They're exercising a lot but they actually lose some of the facial fat. So I don't think that you can necessarily improve some of the photo aging through exercise alone, unfortunately. Should everybody wear a sunscreen every day? It will only help you, yes. I think a mineral sunblock, sort of a physical blocker with zinc, titanium, has zero side effect, zero downside. It will protect your skin from the very negative effects of UV light. Now, if you're worried about vitamin D absorption, you're going to get it through the rest of your body. I mean, if you're that worried, you can expose your arm perhaps, but facial aging is a huge problem and you can really minimize tremendous amount of damage by starting to use physical blockers from an early age. I only use zinc titanium on our baby and I won't use most of the chemical blockers. And patients are worried about the effects of sunblock that are customarily available on the counters as well. And my answer to that is read the label, look for zinc and titanium. So if you go to CVS and you look at every product on the market, you will probably find only one that is zinc titanium as its sole active ingredient. Oh, good advice. So double question, what is SPF and what SPF should we be using? The SPF that's on the labels refers to the sun protection factor of ultraviolet B. Sadly, the industry has fought off through lobbying a SPF factor for UVA for many, many years, dragging it on. So you do not know what the sunscreen's protection of UVA is by looking at the SPF factor. For that reason, the SPF number is often misleading or only half of the data that you need to know. It's far more relevant to flip the bottle over and look at the ingredient. If you have zinc titanium from a reputable brand, go for that one. Zinc titanium, okay. So one really cool addition to kind of protection is the whole UPF concept, ultraviolet protection factor clothing. Yeah. Is this an innovation that you feel particularly works? Yeah. You know, protective clothing has been around for a long time. When I was a resident 20 plus years ago, we had in Minnesota a couple of companies that had extremely effective clothing. It's such a tiny niche market that it wasn't really that commonly used. Dermatologists would buy it up for their kids before they took trips to Hawaii. And it was really known in small sectors who were into it. And nowadays it's becoming a little bit more prevalent, but of course you can absolutely get most of your protection spending a day at the beach or boating, et cetera, by using proper clothing. I have surfers who, you know, after their second, third and fourth skin cancers, had enough. They are surfing with, you know, facial shield, even helmets. Skin clothing 
is very, very important. And for your kids who are running around the beach, that's really the only way to go. And if you're in and out of the water, you really have to keep protective clothing on. So uh, the natural aging process combined with exposure to the sun and pollutants destroys what you just called collagen. Tell us a little about that. It's a protein, right? That keeps the skin kind of moist and plump. Yeah, it's that they're complex structures. If you look at them under the microscope, even in patients who are 20 years old, 25 years old, who've had sun exposure, you see tremendous alteration. They stain differently. They look differently. You know, we call it solar elastosis. Sometimes when the first thing you do when you put a slide under your microscope and you examine it, you try to guess the severity of sun damage or the age of a patient. And sometimes you're blown away. You say, this is a skin of a 25-year-old. Well, clearly you can have a 25-year-old skin who's been beaten up by the sun look very similar to the skin of a 90-year-old. And that acceleration is what we were referring to initially. So I have two words for you and I want a reaction. Tanning beds. Uh, Pretty good. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, You know, it's hard to approximate exactly how much of the problems are really linked to tanning bed relative to the natural UV damage that people have, but clearly it's a huge accelerant of damage. Before you used to have a industry that was mostly UVB and it was kind of like you get in there and you got burnt and people would like stay away. And then I think the industry shifted to primarily the non-burning UVA, which doesn't give you that immediate response, but gives you potentially a worse delayed response. I don't know truly how prevalent the use of tanning beds are across the country. And so I still think it's a big problem for the heavy users. But if you look at the entire population and the number of skin cancers we see, it's probably not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is educating people to be aware of sun damage in their children, you know, starting with babies and protecting them at a young age. Do you ever sit in the sun? I do. And I actually think that if you try to scare patients out of doing the things they enjoy, that it kind of backfires. So I like to be in the sun. I work too much, so I'm not in the sun as much. I remember getting, you know, a ton of sun or, you know, I used to be a swimmer and I did marine biology. And I remember enjoying a lot of time in the sun and how much satisfaction you get from it. I think you have to really begin the education when they're kids and how they need to limit the amount of sun that they get and try to exercise sun activities as safely as possible. Okay. So I'd like to talk about the debunking side. I know moisturizers are good, right? You're supposed to be moisturizing your skin. Is that an important part of slowing down an aging process? I'm not sure that moisturizing slows down aging, but if your skin isn't producing enough and the signs of it is your skin is feeling dry, it's feeling itchy, et cetera, you absolutely have to moisturize. It's more important than the prescription agents. So I will always emphasize to the patient, you have to do both. But I don't think it's necessarily preventative with regards to aging. If your skin is oily, you don't need it, you feel great, don't use it. So when you go to the counter, they've got this moisturizer for under your eyes, that one is for your cheeks, this one is for your arms, and this other one is for the rest of your body. Are they really different or they just want to sell you seven different products with different fancy labels? There are a few products out there that are very effective, but they tend to have ingredients that are well-established. Most of the stuff that you find on the CVS counter is probably just marketing hype. Would you then make a recommendation to the lay public 
even the sophisticated consumer, would you recommend most of them first go to a dermatologist to get some training as to what they should actually be putting on their face? Or can they really trust the cosmetic counter at Bloomingdale's or Bergdorf's? No, I think you either need to find a really good blog written by a dermatologist and follow it, or you need to visit your dermatologist before you spend a lot of money on it. I think most of the good products tend to be sold by physicians. That's the way they sort of license them. So they're really good brands, whether it's SkinCeuticals or SkinMedica, or there's a company I like, Cosmolon, there's Naya24. There's a lot of those products, and they tend to be more in the offices of dermatologists, plastic surgeons, and some of their products are very good and very effective. If you end up going to the department store, you probably buy an overpriced product. So what is it that causes some young people, age, puberty, give or take, to just have an overwhelming acne problem where others manage it a little bit better and don't have quite a problem? What is the chemical difference or is it just hereditary? Well, it's probably all of the above, but the the accurate answer to your question is it has to do with the body's inflammatory response. And acne is an inflammatory skin disease. Rosacea is an inflammatory skin disease. In fact, I can point out to about 10 to 20,000 inflammatory skin diseases of the skin. They have multifactorial causes, genetics, hormonal, you know, bacteria has a role in everything. But acne is not an issue where your skin is dirty. It's not because you eat poor food. Of course, if you eat really unhealthy food and you work at a barbecue counter with grease all over your face, your acne is going to be worse. But that's not the overwhelming issue. Acne can start out at a much earlier age than puberty. You have children with acne. You begin to see the comedones, the plugging of the hair follicles starting at an early age. What ends up happening is you hit a hormonal surge and the testosterones and those derivatives of testosterones tend to produce more sebaceous secretions and they tend to trigger a much more robust inflammatory response. So tell me what a mom or dad should notice with a very young child that brings their kid into your office. Blackheads and whiteheads. And they need not stress about it. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to become inflammatory cystic acne. But you can actually treat those blackheads and whiteheads fairly easily with topical vitamin A acids. Similar concept to Accutane being a systemic vitamin A medication, you can apply them topically. There's actually over-the-counter different 0.1% gel available that for mild acne, it's very effective for you know teens and their 13, 14, 15-year-olds who have relatively mild acne. It increases their self-confidence. They become accustomed to the treatment. But the parents should look out for swelling, redness, nodules. When they see that, it's not oh, Billy, go wash your face, you're doing a poor job, or don't eat chocolate. You have to treat that inflammatory response. And usually we do a pretty good job with topicals alone. We don't put patients on longstanding antibiotics. We sometimes have to use short courses, but we really try to manage them with good effective topical medication. Okay, so certainly when it comes to something like acne, the cosmetic counters at the department store have all kinds of various cleaning solutions and creams and what have you that are uh, sold over the counter. Do they work? 
there's several products that have been shown to be effective, including benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, and those are ubiquitous in every brand that you can imagine. So for sure, they have some efficacy. The issue is people try to treat inflammatory acne with it, and they try to essentially scrub their skin off, and that doesn't really help, and sometimes it makes it worse. Similarly, you can have facial modification that you have facialists manipulate the skin. And that can be okay for someone who has non-inflammatory acne, but you have to be careful in traumatic damage to inflammatory acne. So we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back with Dr. Payam Abrashami, and we're going to talk about laser skin resurfacing. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Bruce Wallen, host of Travel That Matters. I don't know about you, but I am super excited about traveling next year and about the all-new for 2022 season of Travel That Matters. Look, there is one thing that's become crystal clear over the past couple years. Our time on this planet is precious, and our travel time is the most precious of all. African safari you've been dreaming about for years, that diving charter in Indonesia, the winter trip to Swedish Lapland to see the northern lights. The time for those epic adventures is right now. And for those types of trips, failure is not an option. One thing I know for sure, I do not want to waste another second of my precious travel time for the rest of my life. So how do we ensure that? How do we make sure that these big ticket trips go above and beyond everything we have dreamed? We listen to Travel That Matters. Every episode of Travel That Matters explores the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences through the eyes of the fascinating people who make them possible. Kicking off January 11 and airing every other Tuesday, our new season will have everyone from Abercrombie & Kent founder Jeffrey Kent to Olympic gold medalist skier Tommy Moe to women's travel pioneer Deborah Kalmeyer, who you are seriously going to want to listen to. So for now, take a little breather, rest up, and enjoy your holidays because we are about to embark on an amazing adventure that is guaranteed to make 2022 your best travel year yet. Well, we're back and, and let's just dive into this CO2 laser skin resurfacing. It's kind of a, an anti-aging breakthrough. Can you tell us a little about this? Resurfacing has been a concept in dermatology for a very long time. The idea is to try to remove the top layers of the skin, the epidermis, and perhaps a tiny portion of the dermis and allow a new layer of epithelium to regrow on the skin. Why is that important? First and foremost, you can get a refined, improved complexion of the skin. You can remove brown spots, you can remove fine lines and wrinkles, you can improve it. And dermatologists have been doing that with a lot of different treatments, particularly with chemicals. So a chemical peel is a form of doing resurfacing. A CO2 laser is a laser that absorbs water molecules. And when you shine that laser, it's like a knife. It will basically evaporate layer by layer the skin cells. So you can do a CO2 laser in a very broad form 
and peel off every layer of the skin and essentially give the patient raw skin for which they have to heal over a period of weeks. Or you can do it in a so-called fractionated manner where you're drilling tiny little holes into the skin. And the holes that the laser drills will perhaps cause some new collagen buildup in those areas. So you're not only causing minute re-epithelialization without major downtime, but you're also getting some collagen buildup and some elasticity improvement in the skin. So the, the scariest lecture I ever went to, I believe, was during a, my third year in medical school. And one of our great surgical professors presented one slide after another of nothing but moles, the classic benign appearing mole. And he would say, okay, what do you think? Malignant, raise your hand. Benign, raise your hand. And every single time we looked at the classic, well-circumscribed mole, homogeneous color, turned out that when they biopsied it, it was cancer. And the scariest, most inhomogeneous, irregular looking moles that absolutely anybody would look at and say has to be a melanoma turn out to be benign. And the take-home message I guess I got from this was whatever it is, you better biopsy it. So how can the, not just the layperson, but how can a good clinician internist determine whether this is something that really needs to be taken seriously or should everybody just send your patient to a skin doctor once a year or twice a year for a mole survey and let the experts really figure it out? It's a very, very good question. It's the reason why I'm a dermatologist. I started out in med school only wanting to do surgery. I worked in the fire department in New York and doing skin harvesting, et cetera. I met a dermatopathologist somewhat by accident, Bernie Ackerman, who has been one of the most influential leaders in the field until he passed away about 10 years ago and really reworked all of my thinking about how do you diagnose cancer in general. You mentioned symmetry as a concept that didn't pan out in that lecture. The good news is distribution and symmetry has a lot to do with diagnosing what is good and what is bad. So my passion after spending those few months with Bernie and realizing that I wanted to do pathology and I wanted to do dermatology surgery and combine those together, you know, looking at how the technology and looking at how the advances in the field are helping us train other people to answer the question you just posed. There's two decisions that have to be made. One is is the growth you're looking at melanocytic or is the growth you're looking at non-melanocytic? Is it made out of pigment-producing cells or is it not made out of pigment-producing cells? So pigment-producing cells will form structures like lines and dots and circles and aggregates. And these structures are best seen through a magnifying glass lens called a dermatoscope. So for anyone who is going to be serious in determining the ultimate answer to your question, you have to be able to magnify that and do dermoscopy. Now, the question is, can a patient do dermoscopy or do virtual dermoscopy, or could an app on their phone do dermoscopy? And the answer is probably yes. And we're actually working on projects like that to see whether you can give some clues as to whether you're in one category or the other and whether there's enough symmetry or another where you can begin to say 
this is irregular enough where you have to go see a dermatologist. The truth is not everyone is going to be able to see me or someone like me who's going to be able to be clinically pretty good at telling them apart. So we have to do better with tools that are going to be able to do some of that screening. For the patient at home who is wondering what's going on with their growth, I would suggest if there has been change that they notice, they need to go in and have a biopsy. I think change essentially overrides nearly all other considerations. Of course, it could be a seborrheic keratosis that has changed or wart that has changed. But if it's really changed enough, even if it's pink, even if it's white and it's a growth, go get it checked out. If it's a growth that is markedly odd-shaped, but it has been there for 30 years, the odds are that it's benign overwhelmingly. So not that you need to wait 30 years to make that assessment, but the history is important. The next thing to assess, particularly for brown growths, is how the colors in that lesion are distributed. Is it one shade? Is it multiple shades? Is it very dark on one area and light in the other area? That variation in shades of brown can be a clue that will prompt a biopsy. Unfortunately, for lesions that are much more subtle, the distinction cannot be put into a tiny algorithm or explained in five or 10 minutes verbally. It is literally impossible. The A, B, C, D rules for detection of melanoma, which have been propagated since probably the 80s or 70s, are okay, but not really that good. They stand for asymmetry, meaning the edges of the lesion don't fold up into similar semicircles. They're uneven. The border is irregular. The color is variable. The diameter is large. So there's definitely truths to each of those. But if you give that to patients and say, good luck with the ABCD, they probably won't do very well with it. Do most of these various cancers start on the outermost layers of your skin or deeper? Outermost. The most common process of skin cancer development of carcinoma is in the family of squamous cell carcinoma. It starts out as what is called actinic keratosis, which is really just the earliest stage in development of squamous cell carcinoma. And it's commonly referred to as precancerous because the lesions can be easily treated with liquid nitrogen, freezing, or one of the ablative processes that you mentioned, Bill. And they always essentially start on the surface of the skin. You can certainly have a squamous cell carcinoma start inside of a follicle or within a deep cystic structure in the skin, but they're exceedingly rare. Basal cell carcinomas similarly always start on the surface of the skin and move down. Melanomas, which are starting from the pigment producing cells that live in the skin, also begin in the top layer of the skin and they usually begin in a early in situ phase, and then they emerge from there and go on deeper into structures of the skin. So when you biopsy and it comes back, it's various forms of cancer. Let's talk about some of the treatments. Obviously, when you have a melanoma, immunotherapy has gotten a lot more popular, hasn't it? Yes, for metastatic melanoma. If melanoma is caught early, a simple surgical removal will cure it. I would say that in our practice, 
both clinically and in pathology, the vast majority of melanomas due to the careful surveillance of the dermatologist are caught at a very early stage. They're either in situ or they're early stage 1A. And these lesions with excision are nearly always cured. You can never be 100% sure, but the numbers are staggeringly in favor of the patient at early stages. If a melanoma goes on to involve systemically another body site or in the lymph node, or if there is a situation where they haven't found the metastasis, but the patient is at such a high risk, then they may be treated with one of the enormous advances in the field of melanoma treatment, which is not just immunotherapy, but let's just put it into that broad category. And they can be exceedingly effective for patients in in that category of melanoma. So, Payam, I wonder if you could just take me through a process. Someone comes to you, they have a spot or two that, that you discover or they discover, and you send it out to have a biopsy. First of all, can you tell us a little about that biopsy process, how that's done? Because I know you do a lot of them. And also then I'm going to ask you, what is the process that you go through after that? A patient comes in with an unknown rash, a skin growth, a subcutaneous nodule, so many reasons that a biopsy is needed. Your dermatologist will decide where the pathology, where the disease process is. Is it a superficial process? Is it one that involves the entire width of the dermis? Is it below the dermis? Your dermatologist will decide what type of biopsy is needed. The vast majority of biopsies in dermatology are very superficial. Less than a few drops of lidocaine are injected under the skin, usually in a relatively painless way, and a tiny biopsy is removed. So biopsies are really, really, really easy. So the biopsy is taken by the dermatologist. It's submitted in a transport medium to the laboratory. Then that's where we come in as the laboratory. We process the tissue through machinery that essentially pushes wax into the tissue and takes the water out of the tissue. We cut it, we section it, we stain it in expert fashion. So the pathologist ends up with glass slides with sections of tissue for interpretation. It's put under a microscope and very thin sections of tissue are evaluated. And this is, by the way, true of any organ system from which a biopsy is taken. The skin just happens to be the most commonly biopsied organ because it's the biggest and it's the easiest to biopsy. The pathologist will look at the pattern and through pattern recognition, render a diagnosis of what the process is. Inflammatory, neoplastic, cancerous, non-cancerous, whatever the diagnosis is in specificity. Will you ever make a diagnosis of cancer strictly on morphology, or will you always get a confirmatory biopsy? We do make a diagnosis by clinical morphology of a skin cancer and go straight to the excisional treatment. You know, I may see a patient and I say, really, there's no point of biopsying you today. That's uncommon, but there are sometimes good reasons behind it. The patient doesn't want the biopsy. The patient is elderly, et cetera. But it's very common to perform a biopsy to confirm it before you subject the patient to the treatment. And are there any recent breakthroughs that have made that process easier, either for you and your staff, or do you see something coming down the road that's going to be a major breakthrough? So where our expertise comes in is not just as 
clinical experts, but also as pathology experts. And by the way, the two are really one and the same. You know, dermatology, dermatopathology, they're inseparable. You're seeing the same thing through two different lenses. One is from the outside of the skin using your eyes or a magnifying lens. And the other is cross sections below the skin. Let's say you jump into the water and you're scuba diving under the skin and you're seeing it on a microscopic level. We have advances on every level. We have to make a diagnosis between a melanoma and an unusual mole hundreds of times a day. And there are now advances in gene markers that allow us to make those decisions. Like in my laboratory, when we have a difficult you know, mole or an abnormal mole to distinguish from a melanoma, we may take additional sections. We use classic pathology rules of symmetry and how things are distributed and all of those things that we mentioned earlier. But we can also use molecular techniques we find easy and expensive tests that cost the patient maybe $60, $100 that can allow us to identify whether important gene markers like PRAME is expressed, whether BRAF is mutated, whether P16 is lost, and they can allow us to make a diagnosis with test specificity. In our practice, we diagnose lymphomas of the skin right down to the subtype of the lymphoma using a simple skin biopsy. And so the number of things that we see and diagnose are truly endless. We see hundreds, if not thousands of types of inflammatory skin disease. And the number of growths in the skin too, by the way, are well into the many thousands that we see and and distinguish between under the microscope. Well, Dr. Payam Abrashami, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was uh, extremely interesting. I learned a ton. And of course, we want to make sure that people know how they can follow you. So how would they find you online? Website, abrishamiderm.com. You know, we have a boutique, small clinical practice. We do a lot of different things. Patients are interested in seeing us in Agoura Hills. They're welcome to see the website or or call our office and uh, we'd be happy to see them. You've been wonderful. I hope you come back and visit us again. And of course, thank you to my friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. It's always wonderful uh, seeing your face. Always a pleasure, and Payam, it was really great meeting you. A wealth of knowledge, and hopefully we can we can speak again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for the good work you're doing in the ICUs. And Bill, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the forum. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley. Recording and engineering by Ness Smith. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. By the way, be kind to your skin. Stay in the shade. Bye-bye. From Kirko Media. Media for your mind.